I'm Spencer. And I'm Andrew, and you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, we'll be speaking with Vasant Dar, who is a professor at the Stern School of Business and the Center for Data Science at New York University. He's the former editor-in-chief of the journal Big Data and the founder of SCT Capital, one of the first machine learning-based hedge funds in New York City from the 1990s. Vasant is also the host of the podcast Brave New World, which explores how technology and virtualization in the post-COVID era are transforming humanity. As an artificial intelligence researcher and data scientist, Vasant has a panoptical view of the current moment and intimately understands the role data has in all of our lives. Before we get into it, we'd first like to thank our sponsor, the Japanese luxury timepiece manufacturer Grand Seiko which brings an incredible level of detail and craft to every watch it makes. From its founding, Grand Seiko has sought to create the world's most durable and beautiful watches with the highest accuracy and legibility possible. The new SBGW279, a U.S. exclusive from the Elegance Collection, follows in this tradition, pulling cues directly from the very first Grand Seiko, dating back to 1960. As with so many of Grand Seiko's timepieces, nature is central to the watch's design. Inspired by the Aruri songbird that migrates from Southeast Asia to the mountainous regions of Japan during Rika, the seasonal phase that marks the start of summer, the blue dial of the SBGW279 is finished in an eye-catching sunray pattern. Assembled by the highly skilled craftspeople of Grand Seiko's Shizuku Ishi Watch Studio, the watch is polished throughout with a distortion-free mirror finish and its box-shaped sapphire crystal evokes the look of a vintage watch. To learn more about the SBGW279 or Grand Seiko's other distinctive timepieces, head to www.grand-seiko.com. And now, here's our conversation with Vasant Dar. Vasant, welcome to At A Distance. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you, Andrew. Great to be here. So let's start with something easy. Let's start with trust, which you've been looking at for a very long time. What have you learned about trust, kind of broadly speaking, when it comes to finance? Do we trust humans or machines more? Yeah, great question. And before I give you like a yes and no answer, I'm going to... Yeah, we don't want the yes and no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm going to be a bit of an academic and tell you like, why did I, you know, converge on this question in the first place? You know, why is this an interesting question? Um, and the reason for this is, you know, I got into finance and specifically I went to Wall Street for a few years uh, in the mid 90s, where a gentleman at, at Morgan Stanley thought that my research was really interesting, that it could apply to all kinds of problems in finance, including financial markets. And I'd been experimenting with machine learning at that time. This was in the mid-90s, and I had some success with it. And so it caused me to think, oh, you know, we can apply machine learning to this problem. And I did. You know, I sort of applied the usual approach to machine learning, and pretty soon I had a system, and the system would generate signals. And very often we thought those signals were just dumb. Surely it's not serious when it's telling us to go long bonds just before a meeting where they're going to raise rates. You know, it was just like things like that. That doesn't make any sense at all to a human that a machine does that. But of course, a machine is just following the data. It's following an algorithm. And so we do that. So it caused me to 
sort of asked the question whether humans could actually make the outcome better by sort of putting in that common sense that machines lacked, right? So it was the sort of, we, you know, we're endowed with common sense, machines have none, and so surely we could improve the machine. And so I did several experiments at the time. I never really published the results, but I did lots of experiments because this was sort of in the 90s, you know, you could sort of do more at that time. You could experiment more. So the gentleman who was sort of funding the program said, you know, why don't you put aside a couple of million dollars in risk and try out this experiment? So we did several times. And each time I found that we consistently did better than the machine and that the trader was the first to go face down, you know, because she was closest to the market, watching it, responding, reacting. And so it was just like a fundamental question that arose, which is, you know, uh, when should we trust humans? When should we trust machines? And the answer in finance was that there was precious little you could rely on when it came to human judgment, that for the most part, people sort of seemed to get in their way. Whereas if you had done the math right and configured the system correctly, then you should trust it. You know, you should follow it. Now, there's one caveat, and I'll throw that in, because at the end of the day, you always need some degree of human oversight. You know, and I experienced this during COVID. You know, I wrote an article called Algorithms in Crisis, where every day between like around Feb 1st and March 15th, I kept a diary, and every day I looked at the headlines of the New York Times, and I generated these word clouds. You know, what was in the news? What was, uh, you know, getting people's attention those days? And COVID figured nowhere in those word clouds. We were focused on the primaries, especially the outcome in South Carolina, where Biden approached as a front runner, right? So we were really all focused on the primaries, you know, even though we knew that this outbreak had occurred in China. It would come to the U.S. You know, I was teaching a class on systematic investing, and several of my students said, look, and this was in late January, they said, this thing is going to come to America. There's no doubt about it. This is a global world, and things are going to be bad. And I said, what would you do about it? And they said, well, you know, we would, you know, short airline stocks and go long healthcare stocks was, you know, the general thinking. But... I'll come back to this, which is that it wasn't even apparent that we were in a crisis until sometime late Feb, March, when finally coronavirus started to become front and center. That's the time where you want humans to say, look, I mean, this is like the world has changed, right? There's no way this was part of the training set that, yeah, we built the machine, but surely it doesn't know what it's doing now and we should interfere, intervene. But it isn't easy to intervene. And, you know, you see this problem even in other areas, you know, the two twin crashes of the Boeings in 2018, 2019, where it was clear that something had gone wrong with the system, but the system refused to cede control, you know, to the human pilot. So this issue of, of machines making decisions, when should you trust them, when should you trust humans, has become sort of pretty center to my research. And the answer is that there's no simple answer. So in finance, for example, people suffer from bias, they suffer from noise, you know, both of which have been described really well by Danny Kahneman in his book called Noise, which I reviewed in the LA Review of Books. And you had a great episode on your podcast about it. I, I did. Yeah, we sort of went into these sources of bias and noise in human beings. Interestingly, I've just finished a paper that will appear later this year talking about this very subject, which is when should you trust humans and machines with decisions? 
Or is the question, when can noise become part of your data set? Well, noise is invariably part of your data set in finance. And again, Kahneman points to this by saying, you know, many problems are inherently very difficult to predict. But after the fact, we sort of view the world causally and say, yeah, of course, here's what happened, you know, in retrospect. So we're great at interpreting things in retrospect. But when you're in the moment and you need to predict something, it's very difficult. Like, so even if you get the outcome wrong, right? You say, well, I think the market's going to go up in the next week. And you get that wrong. Did you really get it wrong? Or was the ground truth itself shaky? And that's what Kahneman asks. And in finance problems, it's oftentimes the ground truth that is itself shaky, unlike problems in perception, such as vision and language, where you can say, no, that's a tree. Come on, we can all agree that that's a tree. That's not an aeroplane. There's no ambiguity about it. Or the meaning of a sentence, for the most part, we can agree what the sentence means. You know, the chicken didn't cross the road because it was tired or, the, you know, well, the chicken was tired. You know, it didn't cross the road because it was wet. Well, it wasn't clear whether the chicken was wet or the or the road was wet, but still we can sort of reason about these things. Whereas in finance, this ground truth is itself shaky, particularly in capital markets. So it becomes noise becomes part of the data set, as does bias. Because you know, if you trained a machine on the last 20 years of data, there'd be an upward bias in equity markets, there'd be an upward bias in bond markets. So all things be equal, you should be long equities and long bonds. Like duh. I could have told you that. I didn't need machine learning to tell me that. And yet, that's what the machine will gravitate towards. It picks up on the bias in the data, and there's no getting away from noise either. So short answer to your question is that it's difficult to trust humans, but yet you need some level of human oversight in a system to guard against those events, which may be relatively rare, where the machine is completely out of its depth. But those are situations that are difficult to recognize, especially in these sort of very noisy kinds of domains. So that's the basic conundrum that we face in finance. And you've developed a dynamic AI heat map to assess risk and trust. Can you explain how this works? Can you help us understand what this heat map is? Sure. This heat map was really motivated by work done in the 60s and 70s by you know, one of my mentors, Herb Simon, who basically argued that machines or algorithms were good for problems which were programmable. So programmability was the criterion to ascertain whether we should hand over something to the machine. And things like driving were considered not programmable. And one of the philosophers at the time, Stuart Dreyfus, pointed to sort of the futility of the limits to machine learning and what machines could do. And, and he said, you know, machines have a hard time doing things that humans do really without thinking about it, such as driving, and they'll never be able to drive. So good luck with intelligence. And yet, you know, here we are on the cusp of driverless cars, a problem that was considered sort of inherently human and full of judgment. Why is that? What happened? And the answer is machine learning changed everything. We went from this paradigm of specification, trying to specify or program something, to this paradigm of learning where we say, well, forget about programming, let the machine learn. Now, implicit in this old view of programmability was that once you programmed something, you weren't going to get any mistakes in it. It had been programmed, which means 
the bugs had been ironed out, it was not going to make mistakes. And it made sense for problems of the time, you know, such as billing systems and banking systems, where you want zero error. And so by the time you program those kinds of tasks, there is zero error, right? Those tasks are completely programmable. And so that's what the thinking was. In my research, I really found that there was another factor which was even more important than programmability, and that was like errors. Machines invariably make errors. And to me, the question was, how often are they wrong? And what are the consequences of their mistakes? So how often are they wrong was basically a function of like how predictable it is a problem. So in financial markets, you're often wrong. If you're an amazing forecaster, you know, you may be right 53% of the time, but that's a relatively low bar. So that became sort of a more important variable, which is, you know, the consequences of error. And in my heat map, I basically expressed this combination, you know, as concisely as I could in terms of these two dimensions, saying that trust really depends on how often the machine is wrong and the consequences of error. And I constructed what I called an automation frontier of trust, which basically says that as problems become less predictable, that is, you make more errors, you require that the consequences of those errors be less severe. So it's okay if a system makes lots of mistakes, as long as the consequences are low. So, you know, we trust Google Maps, for example, even though Maps is often wrong. I don't know your experience, but oftentimes recently, it's sent me around in the loop. And I said, like, what? Why did you bring me here this way? There was a straight road here, you know? But a driverless car could kill someone. A driverless car could kill someone, yeah. So the consequences of error are much more severe in driverless cars. So that's what the heat map basically says. It expresses this relationship between predictability and the cost of error and how they combine to form this sort of trust frontier. So with driverless cars, they are rarely wrong. They rarely make mistakes. But we have this sort of real fear that when they do make a mistake, it would be so severe that we wouldn't accept it. Well, they only know what they can see, right? So if, if someone disappears behind a dumpster as you're driving down the street, the car can't see that, and then they appear out of nowhere. Exactly. And that's the kind of thing that humans take into account. A friend of mine who works in this, on this problem at NVIDIA that I check in with you know, every once in a while about, like, you know, so how much progress have we made? And, and he says, you know, it's tough to you know, go beyond just perception, which is, is that a tree? Is that a human? You know, is someone crossing the road? To other kinds of sources of intelligence that we invoke you know, as we drive, such as the one you mentioned. You know, there's a guy who disappeared behind that dumpster. Chances are that he's going to appear soon, you know, maybe in a few seconds on the other side of it, close to the road, so I better slow down. So we take these kinds of actions based on our real-world experience and knowledge, and machines aren't quite there yet, right? They will get there eventually, but it's a, it's a tough slog. And the consequences of errors are really hard. So until we get to the point where we can quantify how often we expect these mistakes to happen, and then insurance markets can develop, that's when we'll see this technology sort of come into the mainstream. On the trust and AI front, I wanted to bring up social media the risks of these social media platforms. You've long argued that algorithmic transparency of these social media platforms is a necessary requirement in order for trust. So could you elaborate a little bit on this and also just share your thoughts on why regulation is needed? So 
the great thing about America is that it lets a thousand flowers bloom. Something new comes along and we sort of leave things alone and say, you know, let the best one emerge. And if they become, you know, embarrassingly rich, but that's good. That's all right. It's all good, right? As long as people are better off in general with a certain technology, well, that's progress. That's a good thing. And we don't want to intervene and regulate something. And that's a great way to look at things, but it does have its downside. And I think it's had several downsides with respect to the internet. So when Section 230 came along in you know, 1996, you know, I think it was necessary to actually foster these platforms and protect them from lawsuits like right from the get-go. The trouble is that we forgot to define any kinds of ground rules. We should have defined some ground rules or some norms or expectations, but we just forgot in our enthusiasm over this innovation. We just said, well, let a thousand flowers bloom. And the internet at the time was not very useful. You couldn't shop, you couldn't find people, you know, you couldn't search for things. And so we had these intermediaries emerge, not surprisingly, the Google, Facebook, et cetera, that made it easy for us to do these things that we enjoy doing, that we want from the internet. But we just forgot to ask some basic questions about whether such platforms should follow some norms or be governed in a certain way. We just sort of let them grow unfettered, which was great in some ways. You know, they gave us great products, but in other ways, it's created sort of a, a new problem for us. It gave them free reign to data. It made them tools for manipulation, arguably even for elections in the US. It's made them sort of weapons potentially against democracy. So there are all these things that we just forgot to ask ourselves. And in fairness, it was difficult to ask these questions at that time. It was hard to envision that this is the way the power structure of the internet would evolve, you know, that privacy would get eroded, data would go into silos. So we, we sort of ignored a few basic things, you know, whether there'd be appeals, you know, could you actually appeal against Google or Facebook if they screwed up your business or, you know, publish something incorrect about you? The answer is no, you can't. In principle, you may be able to, but in practice, you can't, right? So we just forgot to ask ourselves some basic questions, you know, will there be a system of appeals when things go wrong? No, didn't ask that. Uh, who owns the data? Well, I don't know. We'll figure that out. So we forgot to ask all these questions. And now we're looking at the consequences of it. And even though people say, well, prove it, you can't, there's enough suggestive evidence of enough harm or concern that has come about with these powerful actors that, you know, it now calls for asking ourselves maybe we should impose some sort of guardrails around how the internet is governed, how data is used, so that it leads to a less risky society, you know, where maybe fundamental things like democracy are threatened to mental health kinds of problems. So my objective has been to call attention to these issues and see whether we can, with minimal intervention, address some of these problems, right? Can we address sort of the first order problems that we've created for ourselves? And by the way, this has this sort of has a much longer answer, which is that if you look around the world, the internet is, you know, some people call it the splinter net. It's actually that the governance of things is very different in China, India, Europe, the US. 
And the US is sort of first mover, innovator, unfettered, but now we've got some problems. So that's a long answer to a short question. Well, I also wanted to highlight this piece you wrote earlier this year about how Elon Musk is right about Twitter and solving Section 230. And this idea of a blueprint for the governance of social media platforms, do you think Musk could be the person to solve this? And and why does everyone else just seem to stumble around it? So let me start with the the second part of the question, which is why does everyone else seem to stumble upon it? The question is because they ignored it for the longest time, right? I mean, you remember Zuckerberg sort of just outright denying that that they had a data governance problem. Uh, and he was sarcastic towards some of the senators who were questioning him, who clearly weren't as sophisticated as, as he is on these issues. You know, he was sort of you know, almost making them look stupid and in complete denial of these things, right? So for the longest time, these companies are in denial. And I, in, you know, in 2018, I wrote this article in Wired about how Facebook should pay people for its data, for monetizing their data. And I can't help but wonder whether that might have led to a different kind of outcome where Facebook was, was actually viewed as sort of being, you know, in line with people and sharing the, the wealth with the people because it was created on the backs of their data, right? So I actually even proposed that way back then. But they weren't thinking that way, right? I mean, they're thinking shareholder value, data, monetization, without any sort of, without adequate consideration for the impacts of their policies on society, right? So for the longest time, they were in denial and just kept going. And then they've sort of had this very gratuitous response, like Facebook's, oh, we've hired lots of fact checkers and curtailing hate speech. You know, that's really, you know, not going to solve the larger problem. or you know, other suggestions like, like I figured some of the other suggestions, but, you know, they were like relatively gratuitous. And, you know, Zuckerberg's proposal was, we'll share with you what we find. So we'll decide we have the data and we'll just occasionally we'll, we'll issue reports. Whereas I wanted to go much further, which is I think we should have an API into, or regulators should have an API into these companies and say, you know, we have this question or a concern can we test it? You know, you have the data, can we actually test it? So that's what I was sort of moving towards is more transparency for regulators into these platforms without getting into their secret sauce, right? We don't really want to get into how your recommendation algorithms work, you know, unless they're causing grievous harm, in which case we do care, but we need to sort of show harm first and then go into what the secret sauce is, right? So my sort of thinking was more transparency in terms of providing access to data to regulators and scientists so we can see what the hell is going on in the first place. What are the consequences of your actions and your policies? I just want to interject really quick that, you know, we talk a lot about Facebook, right? And their incentives are clear to us. We understand why they did what they did. The incentives make sense. But we don't look at who is hosting the party. I mean, Facebook was one place, but it required a whole lot of other people to enable the use of it and to put it in the palms of our hands. So is there a conversation that should be happening about widening out a bit? You know, do we blame the alcohol maker or do we blame the liquor store who's selling to the kids? Or, do, you know, what's the sort of, how far does it extend and who's responsible? Is it the whole system? Absolutely. One of the things that my 
colleague Aswat Damodaran pointed out in uh, the podcast when I had him on was, look, we've done this willingly. We can't be talking out of both sides of our mouth. You know, on the one hand, we enjoy this, we give this data willingly, and then we complain when it's used against us, right? Absolutely. It's it's negligence on all sides. And Adam Alter, you know, one of my other colleagues, you know, made the statement that, you know, distracted parents raise distracted kids, that it starts with parenting. And if parents are distracted and on their devices all the time, what do you expect from kids? So a lot of this responsibility is really at the family level. It's almost like, all right, guys, we've got this amazing technology and set of tools out there, but beware. And there's an intermediary. There's, there is behavioral science behind the smartphone. There is, you know, sort of, um, we're all responsible, obviously, but there is a middleman here. Absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. We are responsible. I think everyone is responsible. I mean, and, and so there isn't any easy answer to this question, unfortunately. Well, you know, part of this issue here is also just education and digital literacy. And there was the documentary, The Social Dilemma, work by people like Tristan Harris. They're, they're helping teach people what these big tech companies are doing and also just our relationship to technology more broadly. But I guess the question is, when will we get to a point where the dangerous impacts of social media become too much for humanity to bear? Do you think we're all doomed to accept this situation as part of our reality? Are you more hopeful? Well, I think we're already there, but I'm always hopeful. I mean, I'm I'm sort of a glass half full kind of guy. You know, I one of my colleagues said the world belongs to the optimists, and I'm an optimist. So I fit I, you know, I, I think that, you know, human beings are smart enough to figure this out. I think we've made several false starts, but I think we can figure this out. India's approach to this, by the way, is very interesting. Uh, it's more paternalistic, but it seems to be working in interesting ways. They've created the largest biometric system in the world, the only one of its kind, which can authenticate you in real time. It's like the equivalent of carrying your birth certificate around all the time, but digitally certified and tamper-proof. Right? And India has taken this approach that people should be empowered by their data. Right? I mean, India went from something like 600 million people without bank accounts, huge number, like non-banked people not participating in the economy to 1.3 billion registered users on this thing. So now, you know, Indians have become data rich. They're creating all these data trails. And the question that India is asking is, do we want to go the same way as the US in, in, in letting these powerful intermediaries emerge? And the answer is no. There's actually a middle ground here where the government plays some sort of role in creating these intermediaries, such as, you know, they call them data fiduciaries or account aggregators that work on behalf of the person who's creating the data. So there are other approaches to this. And I had a guest on my show recently, uh, who's actually was one of the chief architects of the Aadhaar system, this biometric one. And we had this very interesting discussion about, is there something that the US can learn from countries like India or China? And the answer is, unfortunately, not much because we've taken a different route to this internet. So we have to find our own path. And I suspect it's going to be some mix of market forces and regulation in a way that goes with our value system. And you've spoken about this. I mean, greed really drove a lot of these choices that big tech was making. And, and when you proposed in that Wired article that 
what would it look like if we were being paid for a date or, or if there was a more inclusive kind of symmetrical relationship moving forward between customer and big tech company. So in your mind right now, if you were making laws and you were, and everyone was listening to Vasantar about what we should be doing with this, what would you enact regulatory wise about creating a healthier ecosystem? What would be some of the first steps you could actually see enacting here in the US? You know, as far as social media is concerned, I think, you know, we really need to need to get our arms around this animal. And one of the things I've proposed uh, for starters is KYC, similar to what we see in the finance industry. You know, know your customer. Now, that doesn't mean that you need to identify yourself, you know, to the public. You can still function with pseudonyms, so you can still maintain anonymity, but at some level, someone's authenticated who you are. Now, this raises other questions like who's going to authenticate who you are? Is this going to be done by humans or by algorithms? And on whose server does it sit on? And where does the data sit? Now, it turns out that there are solutions to this problem. That is, Facebook or Twitter doesn't need to hold on to your data. All they need to know is, you know, are you legit? Are you who you say you are, right? And there are technical solutions to this problem. And this is something that, you know, I've been working on with one of my colleagues, Jonathan Haidt, and there's a, you know, there's a paper actually out there that's sort of always evolving that suggests some of these approaches towards KYC that don't violate privacy and still preserve some degree of anonymity. So I think that to me is basic blocking and tackling because we've already seen the consequences of not doing that. And I think for the most part, KYC and finance has actually worked quite well. You know, financial regulations often have sort of unintended side effects, but I think for the most part, it's weeded out a lot of crap from the system, a, a lot of money laundering, a lot of shady activity has been sort of wrung out of the system, incentives for bad behavior, such as market manipulation, et cetera. You know, you're going to think twice about something when there's a consequence that someone can trace you who you are and point the finger at you. So to me, I think the credible threat of action solves 99% of the problem. Just the fact that someone could come after you for some egregious behavior should sort out a lot of this sort of trolling and flaming and all that kind of stuff that we see on the internet which is that it's just not a civilized, civic, you know, a place to have a civic dialogue. It's just, it's become just the opposite. So, you know, what I'm proposing is in the U.S. is not, it shouldn't be that controversial, but it is. I think a lot of people still feel that it's un-American, you know, that there are some places that should be just uh, completely unfettered. But I think there will always be places that are completely unfettered, but these large platforms with hundreds of millions of users, which can have tremendous impact, these are double-edged swords. And, you know, as Mr. Huxley pointed out in 1958, in a really fascinating conversation with Mike Wallace, uh, the history of humanity is full of situations where we are surprised by the technology. And so, it is wise to be prepared. And I think this time around, that advice is, I think, particularly uh, important 
because the implications of the internet, I mean, this is a completely new animal with incredible potential uh, and impact on humanity. So we better be really careful how we use and govern it. So just adding a bit of context to the past few decades, you know, you've worked in tech and finance for a long time now. Uh, you've weathered several booms and busts, the dot-com bubble of 2000, the crisis in 08. How do you see the current one playing out? And what are some of the main forces as you see it that are shaping this situation, particularly also around Silicon Valley and the tech companies? Yeah, so I've been teaching a course on uh, systematic investing at Stern for like over 15 years. You know, I, I think I can say safely that over the last 10 years, most of my students have never seen a bear market. They always have seen things going up. In fact, a couple of years ago, I was talking to someone about something and uh, and she said, well, why don't you just go along the market? It's going to go up, right? And And I had to, you know, point her to Japan and that, you know, things don't always go up. Things can actually go down for long periods of time. And that's where we are now. So I think this is, in the larger scheme of things, it's a good thing, right? Because people have just gotten like way ahead of themselves. Like whenever I met anyone under 30, the first question for me was, you know, what do you think about crypto? To which my response was, well, I'm more interested in what you think, which I really was. But unfortunately, I didn't get much other than I think it's going to go up. There was very little reflection on what the hell this thing really is? How is it going to change things? What are the problems? You know, it was just this thing, I think, that millennials or Gen Z actually feel that they own, right? That they own crypto and that they, quote unquote, believe in it. Whereas the reality of crypto is quite messy and dirty, and it creates as many problems as it solves, as we're beginning to find out. So I think the shakeout is probably a good thing. It's a sobering uh, exercise for a lot of people especially people who are getting ahead of themselves on Robin Hood and getting into things that they didn't really understand, but they think that they thought they understood. One of the few things about getting old is as you go along, you realize how little you know and how little you knew about things you thought you knew a lot about. So in that sense, I think it's a good thing because I, th I think everyone's learning something about markets. So you teach courses on systematic investing, like you mentioned, prediction, data science, the foundations of fintech, really is what you're well known for at NYU. What are you seeing in the generation coming up beyond the fact they've never seen a bear market that differentiates them from maybe your own generation, specifically in the perspective on AI? I've sort of grown up with AI, like from the days of sort of pre-machine learning where you had to specify knowledge and put it into a system to make it work. You know, things used to be hard then what I do tell students, and I just uh, had an information session at the Center for Data Science, where I am co-director of the PhD program, you know, and I tell students, I said, like, to be really honest, I'm really envious. I'm, I'm so envious that you guys are entering the field when you are, because now it takes like a day to do something that used to take a year or more. And I'm not exaggerating here. It used to take so long to do some basic kinds of things, which you can now just sort of pull out a library, you know, grab the right objects, stick them in, and boom, like before you know anything, you built a system, you validated it, and all kinds of other stuff. I mean, to me, I feel like 
if I were entering the field now, it would be like being a kid in the candy store. There's so much potential, like in terms of all these really powerful algorithms that have become available in terms of data. So I see this as just unleashing a powerhouse of innovation. You know, I went to a boarding school in India, one of these sort of British colonial anachronisms. And while I was there, I, they asked me to give a talk, and I did. And it was on, you know, how to prepare for a future of AI. And I started my talk by saying, you know, when, when I was 16, we used to read the newspaper like once or twice a month. You know, the world used to move so slowly. Even as I spoke those words, I realized like, wow, you know, that is, that's just so different, isn't it? We used to grow up local. The people who had the most influence on you were your friends and your teachers. And so it, it was really important to have good teachers, right? I mean, we barely had an idea about what was going on in the world outside until we were much older and sort of ready to deal with it, right? I mean, we were learning the three R's. We were like naive. I think all of that was great. It was sort of a local world before you sort of gradually became aware of the world around you. Whereas now it's like global from the get-go, you know, you're sort of plugged in to the internet, you know, from the time you're 10, you know, people are reaching puberty like five years earlier than they used to. You know, why is that? You know, is it the signals they're getting, right? So in that sense, I feel a little sorry for kids growing up in this day and age is that they never get to experience that local existence to the degree that they used to, that they're like thrust into this sort of global, always on, always connected internet where they're being voted on up and down, depending on how many clothes they're wearing. I mean, it's a brutal world in that sense. I sort of have mixed feelings about it, right? On the one hand, I feel like ours was simpler, more innocent. In a sense, it let us sort of grow up slower, you know, until we were ready for the real world. Now people are just thrust into it from the get-go. But on the other hand, there are so many amazing things out there. But again, I'll come back to a glass half full, which is, I think, on balance, this is an amazing world to be growing up in. But one has to be really wary of all of these distractions, temptations, and influences that are just lurking around every corner of our lives. Well, before we let you go, we did want to just mention to the audience your podcast, Brave New World, which is fantastic. It explores technology and virtualization in the post-COVID era how that's transforming humanity. We hope you keep doing it. Thank you so much for joining us today, Vizant. Thank you, Andrew. And thank you, Spencer. Wonderful questions. And I really enjoyed the discussion. Thanks to our episode sponsor, the Japanese luxury timepiece manufacturer, Grand Seiko, which raises the pure essentials of watchmaking to the level of art. You can learn more about the company at www.grand-seiko.com. And thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At A Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for the weekly newsletter, Exploring the Five Senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv. This episode was produced by Ramon Broza, Emily Jang, and Johnny Simon. <laughs>